Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Pinky Basketball Podcast. Welcome back to another episode. My name is Ben. Today, it is part two of my conversation with Danny LaRue, the Athletics' own Danny LaRue, co-host of the Dunked On podcast and his own Real GM radio podcast. If you missed it, go back and check out part one. This is a two-part episode on breakout players, and later on we'll have a, I guess we'll have a part three when we finally get to the other side of the aging curve. Uh, But here, focusing on players who we think are going to improve in the 2020 season or the most likely candidates to improve in the 2020 season in a material way that will have some impact on their team that is positive. And before we return to the conversation, now that we're going to get into the meat of sort of our most likely players here, I wanted to add a little bit more to the conversation based on some statistical research that I did before recording. So I mentioned in part one that there are about seven players on average per season who take a material jump based on some statistical filters that I'd looked at historically. So, for instance, last year, players who met this qualification of improving by at least one point in my offensive BPM model, which is a nice steady improvement, and then also showing positive improvement in augmented plus minus and impact metric stat. If we look at the guys from last year, Darren Fox did it, Devin Booker did it, Demontis Sabonis did it, John Collins did it, Julius Randle did it, and Yusuf Nurkic. So these are the kinds of guys in my mind that we're thinking of in terms of these jumps. Now, the interesting thing to note here before we get back to the conversation is that the majority of these improvements came from players who were already decent. Now, you may think De'Aaron Fox, he had a huge jump last year, and he's the first name in your mind, but Historically, if you look back over the last 15 years, sort of these small advancements that players take, these levels up, they don't often happen in just giant one-step jumps like De'Aaron Fox took last season. Instead, you get something like, and maybe Kevin Durant is the best example of this, where you have clear and material improvement from his rookie year, clear and material improvement his next year. And then I think it was two years later, he was the only player to do this three times using these filters in the last 15 years. I think it was 2013 when he basically started to add more of a playmaking element into his game as his historically good scoring rounded into form. So this is more of a typical pattern. And these kinds of jumps where he, uh, Danny even mentioned Oladipo in the last episode. I mean, these are often players who are already decent. They already have some foundation to build on versus guys being at the bottom of the league. And, you know, it's a pretty sizable jump to go from the 300th best player in the NBA or the 220th best player in the NBA to the 60th best player. That's a little bit more rare. In fact, 97% 
of the players who did this, of those 100 players that I mentioned, 97% were at least neutral on offense, meaning you're not taking someone who has a bad overall offensive box score grade based on that model I referenced, my box plus minus model, and you are starting at a decent ground. So that was a big filter for me that uh, we never really got into in the conversation, but it's not that I only went in that direction, but as we talk about with certain players, I'm more hesitant to identify that kind of growth from guys because it's historically so rare for you to tune up your offensive game when you don't already have some kind of raw offensive material to work with. So wanted to add that before we get back to the conversation. And similarly this week, the ESPN Top 100 rankings came out for the 2020 season. Now, as a quick aside, I think their method or counting system is broken because no one thinks CJ McCollum is near a top 10 player and he finished 13th. So I actually think it's more likely that something wonky is going on behind the scenes there. But they did publish what they published. And in those rankings, a huge number of young players jump. They jump from outside the top 100 to inside the top 100, from somewhere to, you know, the 50th best player, and then a bunch of guys in the top 50, top 40, top 30, top 20. Now, here's here's where this research comes back into play here. The most jumps, the, the most players to qualify for the statistical filter that I put on earlier that I alluded to in a single season in the last 15 years was 11. The second most was nine. The average was seven. It's just extraordinarily unlikely, extraordinarily unlikely to look at all of these young players from the last few draft classes and think that they are all going to improve in a material way. I don't know what the number comes out to be. I stopped counting at seven or eight or nine going through the the top part of the list. But essentially, if your approach is to say all of these young players are going to hit, and that doesn't mean they all become all-stars, right? But if your approach is to say all of these young players are going to hit this season, something has to give because nothing like that has ever happened. You have never had 13, 14, 15 guys improving. Go back to the list I just mentioned. Darren Fox, Devin Booker, Sabonis, Collins, Randall, Nurkic. The year before, he had players like Drummond, uh, Jamal Murray, Valanchunas. The year before, uh, excuse me, same year, 2018, Oladipo, Stephen Adams. Okay, so it is extremely unlikely, one, for all of these guys to be second-year players or even third-year players. And two, the idea that you're going to get 11, 13, 16 of these hits just does not jibe historically at all. So wanted to get to that before we got back to the conversation. Without further ado, I think where we left off, I was drinking some Kool-Aid. Part two, breakout players with Danny LaRue. I'm drinking some Kool-Aid. I've been watching way too much film over the summer. My number eight guy, Zach Collins. Wow. Wow, right? Yeah, I mean, so... So he, this gets into I don't think we talked about this on Real Jam Radio. The maybe we did. You you would remember better than I. The one of the definitive questions for me of this season is two really good teams choosing to play a big at power forward when they didn't as much last year, and that's Portland and Indiana with Sabonis and Collins. Both talented players, to be sure. But I'm interested in what your theory of this is. Yes, okay. So here's my thinking. 
I think there's a decent chance that this doesn't work, that Zach Collins is only slightly better. And I mean, there's there's even a possibility in play here where this basically fizzles. And I think Nate talked about this on the Portland preview the other day on his 19 hour podcast. Um, the, if this fizzles out, that Zach Collins might not even be in the starting rotation and Portland's going to need some immediate help at power forward and they're going to have to hit the market. And I think that is in play. And then I think you look at the next sort of probability chunk and you say like, okay, there's a decent chance that he's okay. Like it kind of works, but it doesn't really pop. And then the last thing to me is really what kept moving him up my list, which is how likely do I think it is that this kind of works that like Zach Collins actually starts to cash in on some of his potential. Where's his potential? Well, to me, it's on both sides of the court. And I'm not saying he's the next coming of Bill Walton by any stretch of the imagination, but he has defensive potential. And so if you looked at how he's played defensively, you have a guy who just hasn't been consistent enough to provide really solid value. But if he could put some of that together, his his flashes of shot blocking, the fluidity of his movement, and if he could learn how to foul less and stay on the court, that that right there is a pretty meaningful jump for a player. I mean, we're, I don't know if that gets you to like a top 100 player alone, but given where he's been, that was a pretty meaningful jump to me. Then you get to the offensive side. And on the offensive side, uh, if he can hit threes at a remotely decent rate, 33 to 34%, let's say, uh, I like his stroke. I have some confidence in that idea. Like it, it seems far-fetched, but I, I have some confidence in it. And then you look at his sort of like mid-post, uh, what he does in that area in terms of passing or finishing. And let's say he's a decent offensive player who is a solid, positive defensive player. Does that make him a top 100 or a top 85 player in the NBA? I, I think it might. And so for me, like a guy like Zach Collins coming out of nowhere to be a top 100 or top 80 player in the NBA at the end of the season, that to me would be super significant. And that's enough in play that I think it counter counteracted some of those other possibilities. That's that's the theory. You tell me if I'm sipping the Kool-Aid too hard. Uh, you're sipping it pretty hard, but I think that <laughs> I got to stop. I got to stop watching there, Blazers stuff. There is merit to the idea and. What gives me pause about criticizing any Blazers fit thing is that Terry Stott's system, broadly speaking, does a really good job of making things that seem like strange fits actually work. I mean, I, I'm a believer that Hassan Whiteside is going to look awesome this year. I don't I don't love Hassan Whiteside as a player. I'm not changing anything about it. It's just that he is very well suited for what they do well. And Collins, remember what they've been dealing with, especially offensively, at Power Forward. I'm an Al Farouk Aminu believer, but... It's not like he's any great shakes offensively, and Collins doesn't have to do a whole lot to move the needle there. You know, they're going from a low-usage guy who other teams in playoff situations often dared to shoot to Zach Collins, who at least has a little bit more— you know, he has different advantages that could potentially come into play there, though playing a non-shooting center makes some of those more difficult. So, yeah, from those respects, I can be there. And I'm very interested with both Collins and Sabonis— whether it's success or failure, then to an extent, this is D'Angelo Russell too. How much do their own general managers and a, and other general managers take from that? Because all of them are in unusual situations, both in the league broadly and in their own careers. 
So, I mean, Sabonis has played the four before, but it was in OKC. It was a different, very different stage of his career, even though he's still pretty young. And I'm interested in that. So if, let's say, the Collins thing doesn't work, then does another team just second draft him and say, look, Neil O'Shea just screwed this up. He undervalues forwards and get through it. Or does Portland say, well, we just need to use him differently? It's good. It's a good question. It's interesting you mentioned Sabonis. He was a guy I wrote in my notes in looking at Collins and trying to look at other sort of parallels. Not not that they stylistically are the same player, but uh, you know situations of players coming. I mean, heck, they both went to Gonzaga, so maybe that's all. Maybe that's all it is. I have putty bed sheets uh, seeping into my brain here or something. Um, all right, let's get off Zach Collins before this is a big boomer bust sort of thing, and um, Twitter wants to probably roast me on Zach Collins. Who, who do you have next on on your list? Yeah, this is this is a challenging area, and I'm going to go with a player who I don't particularly like, but I'm choosing to pick him as a potential breakout guy because of my belief in other elements, and that's Torian Prince. Torian Prince, he ha- has an absolutely crazy differentiation, and this I, again, I hate talking about how public perception type of stuff because how do you quantify it and all that kind of stuff, but maybe it's because of his hair or because of something else. People think that Torian Prince is good defensively. He is not. But I think, and I think there's, you know, he did more offensively last year. There were some good signs with Atlanta. And Atlanta, you know, Atlanta had a lot of growth last year under Lloyd Pierce and Trey Young and all that. So I think there's a, maybe a little bit more for him to do offensively. But then defensively, going into Kenny Atkinson's system, Getting, I'm assuming to play a little bit more power forward, which I think is the end game for for Torian Prince. I think he's a lot better as a four than as a three. I think that's going to help him a lot. And the real question with Torian Prince is: Is he good enough to be a part of their rotation, or ideally their closing five, when Kevin Durant gets back, whenever the heck that is? And if he can do that, then that's a huge breakout player because then that's don't need to find that guy. And I'm not completely sold that it's Joe Harris due to his some of his limitations. And so if that guy is Torian Prince, if Torian Prince can be even the fifth starter on a championship contender, that's a breakout player. Man, I want to thank you for dialing up Torian Prince after my Zach Collins. It it I Yeah, mean, it felt it felt good. It felt yeah, good. You were happy. And, but what's what's crazy about it is I don't particularly like Torian Prince as a player. Yeah. It's just you you sometimes a part of our business is re- is trying to read tea leaves, even if you don't believe them. And again, that's uh, acknowledging that's why we go back and we hold ourselves accountable if you're, how you're wrong. But I'm not hedging here. It's just that it's this weird duality where I'm not a believer in his game, but I'm a believer in Kenny Atkinson. I'm a believer in, in how he's going to fit with some of the ideas that they have defensively and the, the just ridiculous need that the Nets have for a capable defensive forward yeah I mean I'm not a huge uh, believer in his game either he is only 23 is gonna be his 24 season coming up and it's interesting because I feel like the thing that you are sort of most dogmatic about here that he's not a very good defender is the thing that would have to jump and work and maybe it's possible going into that new system in Brooklyn uh that that's the case so that would be that would be quite a call um Who's your is your next guy more in bounds or are we still gonna are, are we just have we gone on the crazy train all of a sudden this is so fun I did not I, expect Torian Prince to come up 
I, I think it's. I think you should go first. It's, I wouldn't say my next one is is totally crazy, but I, I'm I'm also interested because I think I'm a couple ahead of you. I, I have Prince. I I don't have mine rigidly numbered, but I think he's six for me. So I think you're a couple quote unquote behind. How many do you have left? I have six guys left. I have five that I think are worth discussing, other than a few like also worth mentioning. Okay, guys. so my next guy on my list, in a way, this 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 player and maybe even my next two players are boring although this player to me feels the most boring and that was DeAndre Ayton and the short of it is that I just think he's a crazy good skilled post player with a mid-range game and gets around the rim and he rebounds the basketball and offense as well and I think the numbers are going to tick up I think the impact is going to tick up a little bit on offense I don't see a huge breakout year in play but he's kind of one of those like narrow you know your your expected value here is that it's likely that a decent thing happens um and so shuffling this all out i kind of just ended up with eight in here i also think he'll benefit from more solid nba level players around him uh just having you know phoenix is last year some of the guys they put out there um where people you know that some of us have never heard of um and you know having a more solid foundation i think helps him and he'll just you know year one to year two you learn a little bit you learn how to use your physical dominance more and I do anticipate decent improvement from DeAndre Ayton this year yeah Ayton is somebody that I considered he ended up not making my list partially because I'm still not sold on him defensively and that's such an important part of the center position in the modern NBA there is an interesting idea we've we've heard this a little bit Buzz, I don't know if it was Gamdoro that had this originally, that they might play him at power forward next to Aaron Baines. And yeah, there's there are issues there of, you know, like that's why center, you know, you play a guy at center because he's a center and you lose some of the value of Aiton's offensive game by pl- playing him at power forward, even though tippy toes, Baines can make some threes as well. Thank you. But I, I think that with Aiton's an interesting one in the uh, kind of the passage of time camp, because He's obviously learning a lot about the game. He showed some growth on both ends of the floor over the course of the season. And you're right that the surrounding talent is going to be better, mostly because it can't be worse, and but also because it's better. And that could help Aiden. It could be- benefit a lot of different players. So yeah, I think that's a worthy inclusion. A player that I should mention, I, he, he actually was on an earlier iteration of my list, but I actually sort of replaced him with Torian Prince. For it's a similar logic. It's just uh, Prince is younger and all that. But I just want to mention him as 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 we're getting off base a little bit with some of the other guys we talked about is Tony Snell and Snell again older. A lot of the guys on my list are Snell. It will turn twenty eight relatively early in the season. But the reason why I wanted to mention him in this, but he's not on my top ten, but I wanted to mention him is because again it's a high leverage spot. Detroit needs wings in the worst way. They need guys that can play next to Blake Griffin that don't take a lot off the table. And if Tony Snell's last year hadn't happened, I would be even more bullish on him. But remember that the Bucks were a very well-coached team, a very well-run team. They weren't coached by Jason Kidd anymore. And he was pretty marginalized. Snell played 18 minutes a game on the league's best team and was basically an afterthought, even though he did you know, all right in the minutes that he played. But the reason why I think of him as like a fringy breakout guy is the same idea with Torian Prince, where if he can be their starting small forward and be decent at basketball and make a difference, then that that changes things for the Pistons. And that's another flavor of breakout. So that's why I want to talk about him briefly. I thought you would have another Detroit player on your list. 
I'm surprised it's Snell. Were you thinking? Yeah, well, so I thought about giving one of my slots to whichever Detroit small shooting guard breaks out, <laughs> and just be like, you know, Bruce Brown or Kennard or somebody else, but or Seku because I freaking love him. But it's gonna take him. Some yeah, time. I was thinking you'd you'd have Kennard. Yeah, Kennard. I mean, both Kennard and and it's hard. It's it's tough because they're both white. But and Kevin Herter, I consider it's tough because they're both white. So well, that's I mean, going to get clipped out. You and passed that, around. I, don't, I don't. I don't care. But but you, I I, I don't want to group those guys together because of their their skin color. I want to group them together because of their game and development. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they're both you know kind of good with the ball in their hands, but not good enough to run an offense. Capable shooters. I like their decision making with both of those guys. Like that was something that really impressed me with Herter his rookie year and with Kennard his rookie year, which is now two years ago, and. With both of them, my question is the same, which is, well, what are they on a better on a better team on a let's say a six seed or better? And my answer is, I still don't really know because you still need to have a, a good primary ball handler with them with Kennard. That's probably just going to be Blake Griffin because he's Blake Griffin, and Trey Young obviously with Herder in Atlanta. But the even though there's intense scarcity at shooting guard. The idea of a player who is in a net benefit offensively, but not a not a centerpiece, and then is probably a negative defensively, I just don't think that's a super valuable player, even with the scarcity. Yeah, and he's also, in Kennard's case, just the total inability to have that third level and get to the rim. Mm-hmm. I, I could not believe how poor... I looked them up briefly because I, too, kind of like the idea of Kennard, and it's something like one shot per 36 minutes at the rim on re- like 54% shooting, really low shooting. Um, so that was a that's a pretty big handicap for me. All right, let's now we're at least moving into the final stage of the list. I feel a little more comfortable, a little feel a little more confident. Let's get to your final couple guys. Who do you have next? You might express outrage that I'm even counting him as a breakout guy, but I don't care. Well, you had Russ, Car- you had Russell Westbrook in there, so. It's Carl Anthony Towns. And Towns Okay, hold on. At- no, no outrage, right? But I, I do want you to tell me that it's a breakout guy because you think he's going to take the leap into the top ten or whatever. That's what I want to hear. Right? Yeah. That that's the the idea is. I don't know that he's necessarily going to have a Nikola Jokic season because Jokic's role and everything else is so special, and Malone deserves credit for that. Jokic deserves the lion's share of it because he is damn amazing. But. I see Carl Anthony Towns as an overall offensive force, as a similar level of player. And the what we saw from Towns in the second half of the year, once the just insanity of the Timberwolves got settled, once they got Ryan Saunders in his coach, that he looked like that guy to me. And if Towns can put that together for a full season and be competent defensively, he's a star. Like an unquestioned star potential maybe even likely all nba type of player just depending on how the center you know we have a lot of these guys at the center position the the wealth of of fives but towns i think he can be the best offensive player on a very good offense now does that offense necessarily involve Andrew wiggins that's that's a question for another day but i think he's special there and that jump into at least the top 10 conversation is something that i i think there's a pretty good chance we're having at some point this season I still worry about the D um, you know and but I'm 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 with you on the idea so much so that I had at certain points in time both Nikola Jokic and Joel Embiid on my board for the same logic because I just I just think it's too hard to find another gear for those guys I actually think 
Cat is the guy who maybe has more of another gear, but it's all very hard. And so if Embiid puts it together, you're talking about an MVP candidate instead of more of a back-end top top 10 guy. But I just find harder spots for him to make improvement other than like conditioning or overall health and staying healthy. Um, Jokic, same thing. Like maybe he has a little bit more to grow, but he does. He's kind of got so much polish now that he's developed with his game. So I ended up with neither the cat as well. I just, like I said, I just thought the defense was hard, but I, I love that direction. I totally love that idea. It's just a matter of, you know, how likely is it that this guy can actually in cats, in cats case, I think that's a full leap. I think to be discussed amongst those players in April and May would be a full leap forward for him. I believe this is the fourth separate podcast that I've used these exact same numbers on. But here are Carl Anthony Towns stats from the 20 games <laughs> yep. that he played after the All-Star break. Yeah, these are good. 28.1 points per game, 3.4 or sorry, 13.4 rebounds, 3.8 assists, 63.5 true shooting on 33.3% usage. Yeah, he's a monster. That's bananas. Yeah, he's... That is and and he's going to even though this is a parallel with DeAndre Ayton, and I actually think there's more room for Towns, as crazy as it sounds, if we're looking at last year in totality, I think there might be more room for Towns to grow than Aiton, just in terms of what I expect. And another part of that, you brought this up with Aiton, is I think that having Robert Covington around for close to a whole season is really going to help. Now, you get into small sample size theater with it, but I saw some real signs from the Wolves that not necessarily being great defensively, but being competent in some of that little stretch where they were closer to healthy after the Butler trade. And they still have a lot to figure out on the perimeter. They still have a lot to figure out just the way Rosas just didn't have a ton of tools this offseason to make the team better. And it's going to take time. That's what happens when your predecessor and more importantly, his owner pay somebody way too much money, way too early with Wiggins. It took away a lot of the flexibility, but if they're, decent let's say near league average defensively and towns is is that guy offensively then they might even be a playoff team so just to be clear for me i already am super high on towns's offense which is maybe others aren't but i i just think he's already an offensive monster i think those splits from the last 20 games of the season are in line with how i see him offensively which is a devastating score at multiple levels great outside shooter and a very good passer for a big and and you might be right in that all this really takes to to move the ball down the field a little bit so to speak is a more more of a playoff sort of contending team more balance that Covington brings to the lineup a little bit more maturity it'll be interesting to see uh anything else on that or should we move on to my next guy let's go on to your next guy okay a- another one who feels in a way boring but I-, I actually think there's potentially a lot of meat there and that's Jason Tatum um, obviously a huge amount of fanfare around him from his rookie year, uh, you know, spotlight still on him. But to me, the thing, and I highlighted this in my video I did on him last season, just a lot of indecision at times last year and didn't always go to the basket when he needed to be going to the basket. That That is a layer of his game that when you replace mid-rangers with free throws and layups, when your decisions are quick, I thought he was so effective as a rookie making quick decisions, either go or attack the closeout or shoot the three or move and cut. And he's a solid cutter without the basketball as well. Um, I just, the thing that gives me a little pause is the fit with Kemba Walker. I'm not entirely sure that the entire thing could come together, but I do think it's very likely that he continues to improve. I like him defensively. I've been on record 
for that for a while. I, I actually thought his defense was ahead of his offense. And so really good shooter, gets a little more polish. I liked the quickness of his decisions in a new environment uh, on Team USA playing next to Kemba. And I just think there's enough there that Tatum is a guy we start seriously considering. I don't know if he's an all-star this year, but he's he's more cemented as a high-level player. I considered but did not include Tatum on my list, and it was because of this one question, which I will now pose to you. How do you see a breakout Tatum season being different? And this isn't a trap. There is an answer. There, I think there are a few good answers to this. How do you see a breakout Tatum season being different from his rookie year? So A, I think his rookie year is probably a little overrated given the the way it ended in the and not just in the playoffs but then in the Eastern Conference Finals against Cleveland with how well he played and the kind of counting stats that he put up and B I think it's you know more importantly it's going from I didn't think he was a top 40 player as a rookie at all so it's going from these areas where like okay your corner shooting is good your spot up shooting is good your defense is good and kind of upticking everything else and if you're scoring goes from you know your efficiencies around league average or whatever and it goes up your free throw rate rate starts to go up your all of that stuff goes up oh he's also made strides as a passer I think in the last two years uh, he has a lot of room to grow as a passer I wrote an article for nylon calculus about this a couple years ago and I am starting to see more of that quick decision combined with passing more willingness to pass around the basket I think the improvement in all of those areas is the thing that I'm in a way, already seeing. And so I think coming into this season, it's just putting it together in a way that, like I said, gets you to one of the better wing players in the league. The sh- the other shorthand there is improved defense, higher usage, and higher assist rate. Just being a larger part of the offense. If he can be... Because remember, Tatum that year, yeah, 43% from three, 59% true shooting. But he was below 20% usage that year. He had His assist rate was 8.3%. And yeah, Kemba Walker being there is part of it, but I think Tatum, he can if he can be similarly efficient with a higher role in the offense, that's a much more valuable player. And defensively, they're going to need more from him this year because they functionally replaced Al Horford and Aaron Baines with Ennis Kanner and maybe the Time Lord. So that's going to put a lot more on everybody else's shoulders. And I'm, I'm interested in Tatum from those respects. And I've been frequently criticized by Celtics partisans especially his rookie year, for saying that my biggest criticism of of him, of Tatum, was that I thought he was going to be an excellent complimentary piece and that he wouldn't be a star because you wouldn't want him running your offense, you wouldn't want him as your best defensive player. I still think those things are true. But that isn't to say that a great complimentary player isn't useful or isn't a really valuable piece. There are a lot of excellent players that kind of fit that bill. I think a great example of that would be somebody like Clay Thompson. But... I still have those concerns with Tatum and bringing in Kemba, something you brought up, isn't is an important element of that. Yeah, the Kemba thing, the Kemba thing gives me a little pause, but I, I'm still and the concerns are valid. I think the concerns you laid out are valid, but I just he's one of those guys that maybe in a way, much like Donovan Mitchell, I feel like I'm already seeing enough to think that there's going to be some improvement. So the probability of having meaningful improvement uh, becomes much more likely. And you don't necessarily have to jump to an all-star level, but there are specific areas with him, decision-making, going to the basket, free throw rate, and passing that I'm seeing that are improving. And so the question is, you know, just how much value will that carry you uh, in in year three? 
basically. Uh, who, who do you got next? In some people's minds, this might be the biggest ledge that I go out on, especially because I don't feel super comfortable on it, but Lonzo Ball. And I just believe in, I believe in Lonzo as a player. And the other part of this, I was debating which player, there are three guys in this camp to use, and I'm choosing Lonzo for a couple reasons, is I think getting away from the Lakers is going to be really beneficial for all of those guys. Not that New Orleans has all their spacing issues fixed, and this is more really the two years ago Lakers offensively than the LeBron ones, though there are parallels with it. But I think that it's just it's just a weird instinct play that I think being, you know, sharing a backcourt in different iterations with Drew and with JJ Redick, I think that's gonna help him out. I think Lonzo being able to tap into some of his maybe I think he's an underrated defender. I think there's more growth that he can do on that end. And just the change of scenery, potentially maybe being a little bit healthier, all those sorts of things. I, I, I think this is my last stand with Lonzo Ball. You know, I, 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 there's a chance that I'll be wrong, that I'll turn on him and then he'll prove me wrong. That's happened before. It happened with Eric Gordon. He's one notable one that's always sticks in my brain. But I, I just think that there's, I, you know, his concerns are real, and you know, the, Ball can be clarifying in terms of the misgivings that many of us have with Markel Fultz and numerous other guys, but. I think he might be the exception. He might be the this generation's Ricky Rubio, where, yes, the limitations are very present. And if Ricky Rubio, you know, when he was a really good defender and a wizard as a passer was playing now, the limitations would be a little bit more present. But I still think it's there. And I'm I'm just going to I'm going to put it out there one last time. And I think he's I think he's going to have a really good year. I'm by his standards. I'm lower on new orleans as a team today i've seen a lot of people think they're a playoff team or gonna have really successful season i'm a little lower on them i I would be stunned if they had success and it didn't involve lonzo ball having what's considered a good season so i think in that sense i i get where you're coming from um maybe a little bit of Jason Kidd paralleling, you know, when he left Dallas and, uh, you know, defense starts to, he's already a good defender, but people just start to notice that more and it fits with the team. If they, if they can get up and down, there's certainly going to be opportunities for him in transition. My concern with him and the reason why he ultimately wasn't uh, really in my, my final cut or on my uh, list is what other offensive areas is he going to improve in? Is he, is he, is he actually going to be like a 60% free throw shooter this year instead of whatever he was last year? It's a number two depressing to say out loud. Um, is the is the outside shooting going to improve in any meaningful way? Uh, can he have a better presence in the half court playing pick and roll? They're just to me there were there were too many offensive question marks. Go ahead. Well, and here's the thing. You're right. <laughs> I mean, you you really are. I mean, he's he shot forty two percent from the free throw line last year. Forty two. Also, free throw attempt rate ten point five percent. Yeah, it's it, that is comically low. Yeah, and you could see some of those things start to spill over as you know, like if he was more Andre Drummond is an example here. Though Drummond, it's different because he didn't have the ball in his hands as much as once a guy gets slightly more confident from the free throw line, then you could see that number spike and get a lot and get better. Like if he were a sixty percent free throw shooter, I think you'd see him get to the line a lot more. But I think the change in scenery stuff. But what's interesting? So I'll pose it to you this way: I thought about putting for the same logic of you know they were in a weird circumstance, medical team, the, the all the 
crap that was going on with the franchise and everything else. And some, I mean, defensively, I thought with Walton, they generally did a good job. I thought about putting Lonzo Ingram and Josh Hart on my list at different levels over the course of it. Who would be highest theoretically on your list of breakouts among those three? Of the three former Lakers? The three former Lakers, now Pelicans. It would probably be Lonzo Ball. It's a hard call, though. I mean, it's a really hard call. Yeah, my 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 next player profile is on Ingram, so I've been looking at his film for a while, and I I think out of those three, I would probably go with Lonzo. And again, back to my earlier point, I think he potentially fits with the idea of this roster: athleticism, right. defense, get up and down the floor. So, yeah, I don't know. It's making me feel better about my my next guy. Oh boy, I'm excited now. Well, it's just it's it's not of the ilk of Lonzo, but I it feels to me like out of left field and it's also a diff, it's I'll say this, it's closest to your cat pick. Interesting. So my next guy on my list is Kristaps Porzingis. I debated whether to include him. I am a a significant believer. I mean, people who know my work know that I am Maybe the biggest Rick Carlisle stand that exists in national media. Yes. And tell me more. The idea that so because one of Carlisle's greatest strengths is being comfortable using a player in what he thinks is the best circumstance, irrespective of where the league is at that time. Exactly. That was the huge part of the Energizer Bunny lineup, which worked shockingly well. That was the three point guard stuff he was running on the second unit two years ago, which was wild and really successful and has honestly changed the way I've thought about bench play because the idea of I, I always focus too much on what can be exploited rather than what you can exploit. And it's if I were a general manager, I would honestly say that, and this is a crazy thing to say, that the 17-18 Mavericks were fundamental in my understanding of how I would build a roster. And that was not close to his best coaching job in any way, shape, or form. But Kristaps Porzingis, talented dude. I actually, There were times when I thought he was overrated as a Nick because of the echo chamber that is New York, but also because anything good on the Knicks generally gets overrated because they're yep. so little good. Yep. But Porzingis has immense untapped defensive potential because he's a he's a five defensively. Like that's just what he is. He's a talented rim protector. He's not super great at moving his feet. And I think he can do a lot there. And he goes from broadly speaking, disaster after disaster in terms of on court and off court personnel coaching all that to one of the better coaches in the league and a roster that I think fits him really well. This is, yeah, this is exactly where I landed. Carlisle on both ends of the court, uh, that the entire infrastructure of that organization and the coaching staff. Being Damn it, I'm adding him in. I, I, I'll put, I don't know where he's going on the list, but he's going in there. I thought about him for a while and I'm like, but I already thought he was good, but yeah. Right. And that's, it. that's the thing. It was, it was sort of a cat moment for me where he's not a top 20 player in 2018, but he's already very good. And I, I was kind of surprised to look at his numbers and look at impact metrics on him and all this stuff and say, like, well, he's good, but this is a guy who clearly at the end of the year we could be not only talking about as like a really solid all-star, but a key player on a Dallas team where same kind of thing with New Orleans. If Dallas turns it around and pops, then you could have a dynamic duo here where people are seeing Porzingis differently as a two-way force. I just think everything about that situation, getting to play next to Luka, uh, I did not realize in 2018 he took 12 mid-range shots per 36 minutes. Uh, that is a massive number of mid and long twos. And I think 
the ability he's 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 muscled up um we know he's had a long time to recover to improve physically and uh, he's been I, I like also that he was traded last year so he got to be in Dallas last year while he was recovering and that kind of thing at least for me in my experience in life can be very helpful to get a head start and so I just I, I looked at the whole thing and I was like this is a guy who could jump forward um the situation is perfect for him. He still has a lot of room to grow offensively, but all the talent is there. You just got to start pruning and cleaning and getting a better situation. And we already talked about the defense. So Porzingis, who's next for you? Next guy on my list, my number three, is sort of a challenge because I don't think he is going to be a fundamentally different player this year. So it's more of the opportunity situation chains and patches of time except for with one huge part of that, and that's Bam Adebayo. I've, I've been a Bam believer for a while. I, I think there's more, you know, offensively, it's not like, oh, he's amazing with the ball in his hands, but he can do a little bit more. But this is the single stat for me that will, I think, lead to him being there. I've talked a lot on this podcast about dependent offensive players shifting based on the quality of their lead guys. Not only did they add Jimmy Butler, but using cleaning the glasses filter, only 21.5% of Bam's possessions last year were with Gordon Dragic on the floor. So think about the distributors that he was playing with. And Josh Richardson, you know, I've been a fan of Josh for a long time. Dwayne Wade, unquestioned Hall of Famer, all that kind of stuff. But he's a dependent player. He needs that that space to operate. And he's going to be starting. He's going to get all of those opportunities. And so I think it's a combination of him getting better with the with the passage of time, getting stronger, and being able to play around the starters more often, I think will really help him on both ends of the floor. So I, I think he's he's primed for it. But I don't think this is going to be, you know, him unlocking some new potential. It's just a better version of himself. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. If you think it's more situational, I took a decently long look at Bam for this exercise. And there's there's a sprinkling of potential everywhere on both sides of the ball. He's a he's a decent big man passer. Um, he moves very well. He can you know play in transition. He can handle the basketball. He he thinks he's got an eight foot turnaround and a fifteen foot pull up and a twenty five foot catch and shoot. I mean, whether those things are effective or not, I don't know. But when you look at the film, it's all there. For me, it was just more of a question of like, ah, I don't think there's enough where I can see him clearly improving in certain areas and I it's funny I almost cut the other way where thinking Butler and Dragic Dragic coming back hopefully would uh essentially hurt or or make it less noticeable if he had any meaningful improvement but I don't know did you think it was more circumstantial or do you think there's actually room there for him to meaningfully grow as a as a player I think there's you know there's a little bit more kind of room as as an offensive player i've liked his judgment you know maybe gets a little bit more comfortable to I, I talk about for perimeter players two dribbles and a good decision for bigs it's more one dribble and, right. and a good decision i think he can do better there can be a you know transition but also defensively being able to to have the team maybe more in his identity being able to play with jimmy and depending on how their forward rotation works out i think there could be some 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 gains there and it's there, I, I have this inkling in the back of my mind, just like I did last year with Miles Turner, that it just takes young bigs a little bit of time to piece it all together. And 
I think this might be, maybe I'm a year premature on it, but I think maybe Bam takes that kind of a step forward. Spell was a wonderful defensive coach. Their guys always play, always play like they care. And if he just, if that combination of getting a little stronger, figuring out the mental part, getting better as a communicator, if those things fit together and he's an important part of Miami having another great defense and then is the a, a small value add on offense, that's a really valuable player. It's, it's in play for me. I, I like the call out. Um, I have three guys left on my list. Who, how many do you have left? You want to talk about? I have two. Okay, so let's let's wrap up here with. We'll do these final five. Uh, my number three guy. I'm kind of man. I'm wondering if he's one of your your final two. Um, my number three guy is Aaron Gordon. He is not. Okay, interesting. I, I'm. I ended up with him very high, despite having all kinds of notes when I started out with like, I don't know, maybe what can he improve? Can he get his scoring up? Can he do this? Can he do that? Here, here's the way I look at Aaron Gordon. I think he is a willing and now successful playmaker. His passing has become better. He's a, he's more of a diverse offensive player. He's pruning out. He's having to transition from like when he was younger or when he was in college, being this very athletic kind of stud to, putting more skills in place, uh, shooting, decision-making, um, you know, even even on-ball shot creation kind of stuff. And then the big one for me was defense. I think he not only is a probably underrated defender uh, from the national standpoint, but a guy who I think could be seen as a really good defender this year. He certainly has the tools, and there were some flashes of that that I saw toward the end of the season. And I, the whole thing, when I added up the whole thing, a, a, I think Aaron Gordon's getting better this year, and I think he's getting more attention. I think that's highly likely. So the question was, how much better and how much more attention is he getting? And I'm not saying he's going to be a world beater, but I think there's enough there that this is a guy who could have a significant a significant shift in how we view him. And if the Magic are like a top five team in the East and playing well... I think he's got to be a linchpin there, and so that's that's the thinking. Gordon's a challenge for me. I, it's also partially I've, I'm more of an Isaac stand than a, than a Gordon one, so I give some of their defensive stuff. I give that credit to Isaac because that's me. The question that I had for you, sort of paralleling the question you had for me on Bam, is how do you see Gordon's game changing and improving offensively you could think of that in terms of either how his shots and his role is distributed or efficiency within those segments yeah that's a good question I I think that was the question for me too it's just it's he's attacked like to me he's attacking the basket more intelligently as he gets older if that makes sense and I think that coupled with increased skill in shooting playmaking decision making I think that continues to move the offensive needle forward but I mean, I'm not expecting a massive offensive breakout. That's not what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is I think we have a guy who's going to continue to get better on offense. His offensive numbers, hold on, let me pull them up. So he still took uh, like five shots from the mid-range at very low percentage. I think any kind of like little floater stuff that he can continue to polish, that's going to improve. That's a, it's, That number is almost too low for me to buy. Um, he still didn't even take five free throw attempts per 100. I think that's going to improve. As all these things improve and his scoring improves, the fact that he is getting better as a passer, making dump downs, lay downs, skip passes, things like that, 
I think that's going to improve his creation rates. So the idea is that there's a little improvement everywhere in his offensive game, making him a steadily better offensive player. And I like more improvement on defense for him. Yeah, I could see that. And if the Magic can continue, at at least to a reasonable extent, the defensive success that they had in the second half of the 18-19 season, a lot of guys are going to deserve and get credit for that. And Gord certainly will be a part of that group. So it could help there. And I don't really see the Magic doing any large-scale changes but i could see you know any sort of restructuring they do could end up making gordon look better theoretically yeah you've your reaction has really really got me uh rethinking this um all right let's get to the let's get to the final few guys i wouldn't be shocked if my number two guy wasn't on your list at all but i'm you know and and i've never been super effusive about him but i think lowry markinen is going to really take a step forward and with markinen it's been weird because you look at kind of the nature of his offensive game and there are always things to like, he's been a 36% three point shooter both years. And I think that number could go up, you know, a little bit, not, I don't think he's going to be like 45 or anything silly like that, but you know, it could be in that range. But the other, just the elephant in the room offensively for him in my eyes is that I think he can just, we saw some growth in terms of getting to the free throw line, being a more active part of the offense. I think both of those can improve, but also another player like so many who can benefit from, shifting his shots around a little bit and considering the bulls will be a more talented team this year they also will be a hopefully a healthier team this year that markinen he kind of bridges the gap he's more of a complimentary guy than a lead guy just because of where the ball is most of the time but having just competence you know sadaransky and more zach levine as crazy as that sounds as critical as i've been of zach levine in the past and you know, with just maybe a more balanced center rotation. I liked Wendell Carter. I think that offensively that could help. And then defensively, Markin, I don't think he's ever going to set the world on fire, but he can be decent enough to be a part of a successful team. And if so, if the Bulls make strides on both ends of the floor, I think Markin will be an important part of it. And that, to me, makes him a breakout guy. He's also the right age to kind of see that kind of a jump. I, I, I liked him last year. I like him heading into this year. The question for me was, Okay, you're not much of a passer. You're not much of a playmaker. Can you can you drive your scoring forward enough to make a meaningful leap? Like I expect him to continue to get better, but where where is that going to come from? Is it is it improved catch and shoot threes? Uh, I'm with you. I think in that we both a think the Bulls are going to be better, and b like some of the peripheral pieces they've put in here. I just I don't know. I I certainly looked at him for a long time. I just had a hard time. A, maybe it's because I already like him maybe more than some other people. But B, I had a harder time saying, okay, if it's not going to be from some other component like playmaking, moving, whatever, offensive rebounding, whatever, then what about your scoring game in this role is going to meaningfully improve? Taking fewer two-point jump shots would really help. And yeah. I think we I think we could see that. Not that they have a coaching change or anything huge structurally that way. I just think that the Bulls will get better shots, and so he won't have to take as many of that. And maybe, just maybe, Jim Boylan and the staff can put a little bit of disdain on those shots and, and get it out of me. So for Markin last year, about 20% of his shots were 10 feet to the three-point line, and he was about a about a 35% shooter on those so that's not you know 35% on two shots that are maximum two points isn't going to get you very far and 
improving that a little bit. His free throw attempt rate, you know, I, I could see it growing a little bit, especially if the Bulls' offense gets more dynamic. It's it's closer to the level when he was below twenty percent to his rookie year. That was concerning, but also, I mean, a, a larger way of thinking about this is Markkanen. Well, you know, you're, you're going to see a higher proportion of jump shots for a, for a guy who can shoot as well as he can. He shot 48% on twos last year. And I, I continue to believe, especially with some of his hot stretches, that if that can bump into the low to mid-50s, that that's going to lead to a pretty big efficiency boom for him. But your concerns about his playmaking are totally well taken. Well, no, it's interesting because uh, I think I think we could have the same discussion in a way about Markkanen as we did about Aaron Gordon, where it's like, yeah, you you can see it from one perspective, but maybe there are more questions than there are answers or solutions. Um, I don't know. All right, so that means you only have one guy left, and I have two guys left, and neither of my guys you've mentioned. Therefore, they're they're not on your one of them is not on your radar. And I'm guessing my number one is not going to be on your list either. Oh wow. Okay. Um. So my number two is Marvin Bagley. Yeah, I'm just that's a totally reasonable pick. I'm just not a huge fan of him. Okay. I I like a lot of his offensive game. I think a year of experience will help to refine it a little bit. He he already had a monster a monster rookie scoring season just in terms of scoring numbers and I think, you know, I, I did a video on this. If you look at the film, you can see why just his skill around the basket, his skill in transition, uh, his jump shot, the quickness of the elevation, offensive rebounding with this with the second jump, which is so quick. Uh, and then defensively is where I'm not a huge fan of Bagley. And again, year one to year two, new coach. I kind of liked some of what Luke Walton did low-key under the radar last year as a defensive coach in Los Angeles. Los I Ange- mean, he, he's been a defense underrated defensive coach yeah. the whole time. The Lakers, I would believe that the Lakers had a better overall defensive performance relative to their personnel every year he was the head coach. Yep, and last year when they were successful before LeBron was injured, they were about three, I think they were three points ahead of league average on defense and around league average on offense. So, uh, you know, going into the, being able to actually like look at their film, some of it started to jump out to me when I was looking at LeBron James's defensive film. Some of the things that Luke does, I think, possibly could benefit Bagley. Again, I... I I have question marks about his defense, so I don't think he's going to be a world beater. But there's just so much potential for him to turn into a really, really good scoring stud, basically, and and be that level offensive player that he he immediately was someone I thought of and ended up very high on my list. An argument in favor of Bagley in a certain respect that I, I actually really do think is important is that... I think, okay, so I also talked about this on Real Jam Radio that came out on Thursday, that John Collins is going to be affected a lot by Dwayne Dedman leaving and basically replacing him either with Alex Len or with a four that makes John Collins the center. I think the other side of that coin is that Bagley's defensive limitations are going to matter a lot less now that he's playing alongside a better defensive player. My assumption is that Bagley's going to start at power forward. Not 100% on that, but I think that's a reasonable interpretation. I mean, the Kings rotation is a fascinating question that I hadn't really started to unwrap until about three days ago when I was going through some things and went, oh crap, who's going to start for them? But Bagley, I mean, it's considering how high the front office is on him, it wouldn't surprise me if they if they needed to put a thumb on the scale, if they would. So does that mean Harrison Barnes doesn't start? Does that mean uh, Bogdan, Bogdan, Bogdan Bogdanovich does not start? I'm a huge Bogdan Bogdanovich fan. 
But again, I didn't think of him for this. But I think it's going to end up being Bagley and Deadman. I think that's going to be the way they go with this. And Bagley, offensively to me, this is the same misgiving I have with Collins, incidentally. I think offensively they're better as fives, but they're not good enough defensively to make that work. So if you have a five that can space the floor, then you kind of get the best of both worlds from those type of guys. And so Bagley could really reap those benefits. And it wouldn't surprise me if the Kings were a better half-court offensive team this year, partially because of Bagley, but also that he benefits from that too with just different players on the floor. And Walton, I think, might... I don't necessarily love everything he does offensively, but they were pretty bad in half-court offense last year. So maybe... this And and obviously, Darren Fox, you don't expect him to be worse, so if he's better, then that helps too. So yeah, Bagley could get some of that. I think there, you I think you made the argument better than I did. I, I might have, but I think a lot of those gains that I just brought up are a little bit more fool's gold. You know, it, they're the type of things that'll make him look better, but won't necessarily make him a better player on a good team. See, and that's why yeah. I didn't I don't care for it as much. And those those circumstances do happen. I, I hear that, but I actually think I think there's enough there of quality that matters on offense where he it uh, the defensive thing and the fool's gold you're speaking to are just things that to me prevent him from being like a great player versus a guy who is now on the radar and now a meaningful player and now, like here's a really good example Julius Randall Julius Randall is a guy who I don't love but he got meaningfully better in the past you see what I'm saying yes I do so I again I'm not trying to even connect Bagley to Julius Randall but to me, there was a little of this idea of like, yeah, the things that I don't like about him still may be there, but A, I think they're going to start to get shored up, and B, the positives, if he if he makes a, a big leap as a scorer, he's clearly going to be a, a better, more impactful player, in my opinion. So that's the thinking. All right, last guys, who do, I mean, this is wild because we're now thinking that neither of our number ones are on the other person's list. So you got to go first. I'm very excited. I'm going to start this with all the reasons this is a very stupid pick. <laughs> what other way could we do it? He, the player that is my number one, is not going to have a meaningfully different offensive role than he did last year. So paralleling Bam. He, unlike Bam, will probably be playing with inferior surrounding talent to what he did last year. And he is already a, let's call him a PIPM darling. So those sorts of elements aren't necessarily in play for him, though there are reasons why I think that happened. But it's still Mitchell Robinson. I, I think that the I, basically there's this threshold for centers that it comes defensively, it comes offensively, where if you're not in the top uh, 10 to 12 guys, then there isn't as much, unless you're very specific, maybe like a Clint Capella type for that team, then you're just not as valuable. And I'm not saying necessarily that Mitchell Robinson is going to get there right now, but when I watched Mitchell Robinson play last year, I couldn't shake the feeling that if he just cut out the 10 to 15% of his game that was the stupidest, that he would just be an awesome, awesome player very, very quickly. And I have seen very little to change that sentiment. And the the there's so my idea behind this is that Mitchell Robinson, if he's can take out the jump if he can just jump less on stupid pump fakes i think that he can be the defensive double that i obsess over at the center position and people who know my like my real gm draft history know how obsessive i am about guys like mitchell robinson is if you can be a a shot changer at the rim 
and you can be an effective defensive rebounder, I am just on board for you. And I think Robinson is going to be that guy pretty soon, and that is valuable. And the Knicks are going to be a tire fire. There are going to be a lot of other things that are going to drive me insane about that team. I I just I just think he's going to, to really take some steps forward that will take years to actualize, but will still be really impressive. It's it's a very interesting choice. I think I mean I'm I'm a big fan of Mitchell Robinson. I have talked about him before as having top ten defensive player talent and potential. I mean, potential is a weird 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 word here because I already think he's a very good defender. Um, he's just, as you pointed to, has issues that he can shore up and further areas that he can improve. I think if he takes some of those strides, there's still the question of any offensive growth uh, because I just hate, I hate the situation he's in offensively. I just, I don't, I don't, if you get the New York You thing. can hate the situation defensively too <laughs> and off the court too. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, that's where I was going. Maybe, I mean... I think defensively, he might get a little bit better. I'm not sure what is there from the perspective of coaching or uh, role models or a scheme or anything that is going to help him take meaningful strides and steps forward to really become, and as to use your words, actualize as a top 10 defender and a real force there. And then on offense, when I just looked at him, I was like, oh, oh man, what what is going to actually happen for Mitch Rob, like what what do you think is best case scenario for his offensive game this year? I'll throw out a couple of stats because I think these are just bananas. I mean, yeah, and it's true he was playing, you know, the sample size here, about fourteen hundred minutes on a terrible team. M- many of the minutes he played were when their season was, you know, falling by the wayside. About one point five points per possession as the roll ban. 1.5 points per possession in only 33 transition possessions. That's how many times he touched the ball in transition, which is insane. And, you know, very good offensive rebounder, effective on putbacks. Even with all of those, 12% usage. All he has, if, if he just, so right now he was taking 10 shots per 100 possessions, seven, eight per, per 36 minutes. If you just bump those up 25 to 30% with his efficiency, even if he makes no gains, I mean, you might even see a little bit of a regression in the mean because how often can a guy be ninety like 95th percentile or better in basically everything that he does well? Um, but if he just does a little bit more of it offensively and takes gains defensively, that's a damn good player. So I think most of his stuff comes at the rim now. Yep, and almost all of it. Yeah, right. And he's, seven, he's 71% at the rim I I think so much of that is just clean up and lob threat and you think Mm -hmm. about right you think about Capella as a paradigm to follow and I do like Robinson there but then again who is who is setting him up and sort of synergizing yeah but who was setting him up last year well right it's not not like I mean think of I mean so just playing with Alfred and not that Alfred Payton is any great shakes I mean they played a lot of Emmanuel Moutier last year and I am not, I'm not any sort of Emmanuel Moutier believer at this stage in his career. Congratulations, Utah. And <laughs> right, but if you replace shooting with shooting, I think that that's the only point I'm making. Yeah, and I mean, and there there are totally reasons to believe that this is going to be a toxic ecosystem with so many guys that are not only me first offensive players to begin with, but also because of the way the Knicks structured these contracts, a lot of them are in functional contract years, so there could be a lot of that kind of stuff, but. Generally speaking, the way I, I like to think about these things is that if Robinson is a more important part of their future 
then the front office and the coaching staff will eventually put their weight behind him, at least to some extent. And if other guys don't get on board, then they'll be somewhere else. I know, but we're talking about the Knicks. That's true. <laughs> we are we are very much talking about the Knicks. And in a normal year, I would have a couple other players that would be above Robinson. This is It's sort of like when I was arguing, like when Malcolm Brogdon won Rookie of the Year, where Malcolm Brogdon did not have a Rookie of the Year campaign. It was just that there was nobody above him. And I'm sure there will be players that, that move above this level, including some that we haven't even mentioned to this point. But Robinson, I just feel why I have him number one is just that I think there's room for him to grow and there is value in that growth. And so even though you know there's a much smaller chance that he becomes a star than somebody like Donovan Mitchell or Cat or somebody else like that, I think there's something. And it's also, I'm not comparing them as players for the love of everything. Please do not think that I am. But I think there are times when players who are really good at doing a small thing, especially at a young age, their potential gets underrated because people go, well, where is could it be? And the guy that I brought up thinking of here is Giannis. Giannis, there were, you know, it's like, oh, he doesn't have a jump shot. He you know, doesn't have the stuff. Where is he going to grow? It's like, well, he's just a really good basketball player, and a lot of this stuff is going to figure it out. And Mitchell Robinson is not Giannis as an offensive player, but... Think about the growth that Giannis did defensively. He's a physical marvel, figured out a lot of that kind of stuff. And just, you know, that's why he won the MVP last year for me was that he was so much better on that end of the floor and was a material contributor to one of the league's best teams. Robinson is not going to be a material contributor to one of the league's best teams, but I have this just unshakable belief that talent finds its way. And I think Robinson has more to give. I just don't know exactly what it is. So my number one guy is essentially the opposite of everything we just talked about, because I love the point you just made about finding one particular area and just excelling in that area and then building your game around it. One of the reasons I compare Giannis to Shaq is not because I'm confused and think Giannis weighs 335 pounds, but because they both are a singular force around the basket, era-specific. Shaq was a power compressed force. Giannis is a space stride length force, but that unlocks everything downstream. So I love that point. My number one player, given the likelihood, I think, of his improvement or any of these guys' improvements, multiplied, if you will, by the magnitude, the potential of this improvement, is a guy who I don't think has one dominant skill in any area. I think he is a basketball savant and is just going to constantly get better in every area, and that is Luka Doncic. Luca is a great pick. Uh, he kind of like Porzingis is a player that I didn't put on just because I'm so high on them already that it's. But it's the cat thing for me. It's, yeah, it's the yeah, meaningful it's, it's change. Totally, totally fair. Totally fair. I mean, and Luca, and and I like the parallel of Luca and Mitchell because there there is this. Maybe it's because he's a little bit doughy. There is this idea with Luca that, oh, how much better can he really be? And the answer is a whole lot better. Yeah, that's that's my take on it, too. I think he can be insanely better. I think he's demonstrated consistent growth as a professional going back to Europe. And he strikes me as the kind of basketball player and the kind of basketball mind who will constantly be putting things in his game, uh, moves up and under, step backs, tricks, the the hard, that's to me where the hardened connection lies like he's as crafty as you'll ever see and he's 
all across the board, everything can just keep getting. He's already good, right? And he's already offensively good and effective and numbers, advanced numbers and impact numbers bear that out. But there are degrees to grow here that to me are significant and meaningful. And we don't know if it's going to be huge growth in year two, but laying the whole thing out to me was like, wait a second, he still only shot 71% from the free throw line last year. He was still only in the low 30s on threes. All of these numbers are like decent, but like I said, orthogonal to Mitchell Robinson, all of them can slowly improve and all of a sudden you have meaningful improvement across the board. The other argument for Luca, and I like that what triggered this for me was you bringing up James Harden, is that Harden had to change teams for this to be the case, but Luca does not in that he now has teammates and a scheme that makes more sense for his skill set. Dallas didn't have the offseason I wanted them to have. They struck out on a lot of guys. I think that the way they approached it was mistaken for a f- in a few different ways. You know, getting somebody like Danny Green could have really helped. But the most important addition they have is somebody that they didn't get this offseason. That's Porzingis. Porzingis, as a potential, you know, dual threat. I, I sorry, I, I, I just I just incorrectly used one of my own terms. So I use the term dual threat big, meaning a, a big man who can pop or roll to the rim. He can do both those. I think that's going to open up a lot in Luca's game. But also the idea of a floor-spacing five that can defend. Because Doncic is not going to be... Doncic, sorry. Is, is not going to be the best defensive player on his team. But if he can be the offensive engine and competent defensively, that's huge. Exactly. And I think he can do that. And I think Porzingis will help. But then piecing together all of the other elements that make the Mavericks ecosystem this year. So I think they're going to have a larger role for Moxie Kleba this year. Somebody who I considered putting on my list in that, again, in the better than you think, I ended up going with Jermichael Green and Deadman more in that camp over Kleba, more because, you know, leverage of position and all that kind of stuff. But it wouldn't surprise me if Kleba outpaced those guys just due to circumstance. Wouldn't shock me at all. Seth Curry is a wonderful fit with Luka because... He can play both on and off the ball and sometimes a little bit underrated of a defender. And then all the other guys, DeLon Wright is a really interesting one. Dorian Finney-Smith, who was, of course, already on the team, maybe they can figure out something with Hardaway or Courtney Lee, the kind of afterthoughts in the Porzingis trade. And Powell works reasonably well. I just don't think Dwight Powell is that interesting of a basketball player. But what Luka can do is be the guy who makes a lot of those players better. And sort of paralleling what I said about Carl Anthony Towns, it wouldn't completely shock me. It wouldn't even shock me if Luka was the best player on a playoff team this year. And that's a huge step. Yep, that's that's exactly the way I'm looking at it. Um, Danny, thanks so much for doing this. You want to come back and do the other side of the aging curve? Don't I kind of have to? I think. <laughs> but yeah, it's going to be fun. I think we do. So that's it for part two. A huge thanks to... Danny for doing this. I hope you found it worthwhile and entertaining. It was a lot of fun to go through that with him. Once again, you can find him over at The Athletic on Real GM Radio. And of course, he's the co-host of Dunked On with Nate Duncan. If you want to support this podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash thinking basketball. There are different subscription tiers, 
where you'll get different stuff. And the latest thing for Patreons is early access to YouTube videos when they are available. So that is the insider Patreon tier, patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Check that out if you want to support the podcast in any way or find additional materials and content over there. Otherwise, once again, hope you guys enjoy this and as always are having a great day.